this morning. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but there is a method to the madness. What we did for the first four weeks through Acts 2.42 is to lay out what the scriptures teach us of what the purpose of the church is, beginning with the devotion to the apostles' doctrine. We're going to see that illustrated and demonstrated this morning, but also uh, the breaking of bread and the time of prayer and the fellowship. And so understanding that to be the role of the church, we're going to take a look at the book of Genesis. We're going to start this series. Uh, The first time I preached through uh, the book of Genesis, I sort of went verse by verse and sort of tried to get everything that was there. We're going to do it a little bit different this time. We're going to try to hit the main points. Uh, To illustrate this, I want you to look at your bulletin cover. And some of you that are in the construction industry probably could explain this better than I could. But I thought this diagram kind of lays it out well. Let Let me talk a little bit about what's here. If you look at that the picture, it says Genesis laying the foundation. I really believe that's what the book of Genesis does in many ways. It lays a foundation for the Christian faith. It gives us an orientation, sort of a measuring stick. And if you look at the diagram, what you'll see here are how they lay out a foundation, whether it's a square or a rectangle, to be perfectly square, 90-degree corners. And it starts with sort of the gray structures that are on the bulletin. They call them the batter boards. And you can see if you can read the fine print there. They drive stakes in the ground, and they nail those batter boards in an L-shaped formation at each of the four corners. Then what they do is they'll be able to drive a nail into the batter board, sort of from top to bottom, from side to side, and they'll tie a string on that batter board, and they'll they'll lay out the rectangle with the four strings. And what they'll do then is they'll measure the diagonals. And if those diagonals don't come to the exact same measurement, they know they don't have a perfectly square pattern for their foundation. So they can move those nails and change the dimension of the diagonals until they get the same number for the measurement of the diagonals. And when they've got that, they know that they've got a squared up pattern for their foundation and so they'll drive little little pegs at the at the intersection of the strings at the four corners to know that they've got a squared foundation it is a common uh, construction track technique i imagine it was used with the pyramids i don't know that in egypt they could have gotten the pyramids as right as they did if they didn't have this technology and, and as we think about egypt we can think about moses and we can think about genesis and i think that's what genesis does It lays out a foundation by which we can measure our understanding of God and his word. It gives us a standard. And in Genesis, I believe what we've got are foundational concepts that really echo, that that are, are repeated and explicated and developed throughout the rest of Scripture. And so what we're going to do, if you look at your outline... You're going to see uh, number two, three, and four, basic foundational concepts that are essential to the Christian faith. Maybe you haven't seen Trinity in Genesis 1, 1, and 2. 
Lord willing, I'm going to be able to make that case. And then we're going to look at this phrase that's repeated again and again. It was good. Speaking of God's creation, he has done. And he finishes up by saying it was very good. And lastly, we're going to look at man made in the image of God. These three concepts, as one uh, fellow I was listening to this week, he gave a, a discussion of this topic. When we look at our world, as it exists, 2024 America, the abandonment of these three concepts has led to so much of the problems, so many of the problems in the degradation, the decay of our culture. When you think there is no Trinitarian God, sovereign God, when, when you don't understand that his creation was very good the way that he meant it, when we don't see ourselves as made in the image of God, anything becomes possible. In other words, you remove a sovereign God, and then we all make up our own rules. Do I want to murder somebody? Do I want to be a racist? Do I want to destroy the environment? Well, then I, could, I do it, because I'm God. I make my rules. But you put Genesis in its proper framework as the, the standard of our culture. And we used to do that in this country. 1950s and prior, people may have disagreed with what the scripture says, but they kind of kept it to themselves, and they kind of followed these principles. And we can make the argument, maybe we had a better society back then. I don't, you know, I'm not here to argue today versus then. But I do want to look at Genesis, and I do want to see this framework, these diagonals by which we can measure our culture and our theology and our thinking and our living and our attitudes and our actions and see what Genesis has to say. And so I've summarized the passage this way. That the central significance of creation, and that's what we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 1, is defined by God himself. So I want to read Genesis 1, 1 through 10. I'm not going to read the whole the whole chapter. Uh, I'll come back and read uh, 25 through 28 in a little bit. But I want to start with Genesis 1, 1 through 10. Genesis means beginnings. It's the starting point. It's, it's the foundation of our theology. So as I read this, hear the word of the Lord given to us for our understanding and worship of Almighty God. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God, made the ex uh, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. Let me stop there. Uh, like I, As I mentioned, we'll come back to some of the, the, the scriptures that address man being made in God's image in a little bit. 
But I want to start with an introduction to Genesis to sort of give us uh, sort of the backstory. It starts with who is the author of the book of Genesis? The traditional theory of that has been Moses. And I'll, I'll speak to that in a second. About 200 years ago, an alternate theory for the authorship of Genesis was uh, sort of concocted, and it's called the JEDP theory. And I won't go into all the particulars of that. And if you want to do that sometime, I'd love to, uh, because it's, it is very relevant. But the basic idea is that Genesis was a compilation of these four different J, E, D, and P ways of looking at the book. And basically what we end up with is four different schools of thought with not four individuals, but, but four groups of individuals who, who kind of said, this is how Genesis was compiled. And you end up with a bunch of people, a bunch of what they call redactors, people who sort of chop up bits and pieces and organize, you know, this, this scripture belongs to J and this scripture belongs to P. And they kind of divided up the word of God that way. And what it does, it runs the risk of denying the inspiration of the scripture. The God of this universe is smart enough to have four different ways of thinking and organizing his universe and of explaining himself in the Pentateuch. And so, but we, can, we know about the date of Genesis a little bit. It was after Joseph, obviously. Joseph, the book of Genesis ends with Joseph. And so Joseph was alive and he sort of ended his, or he, the sort of end of his, the time of his uh, placement in Egypt is given there. So it had to be written sometime after Joseph. And what happens in the book of Exodus, beginning chapter 1, verse 1, says a pharaoh arose that did not know Joseph. And then very shortly thereafter, Moses appears on the scene. And then Moses stays dominant from the first two chapters of Exodus right through the end of Deuteronomy. So Moses is the dominant figure. And so I think there's good reason for us to believe that the book of Genesis was given by inspiration from the Holy Spirit, from the God of the universe, who understood those four schools of thought and put all of the word of God in Moses' ear and heart by his inspiration of his Holy Spirit and gave him this book for us. And he meant it as a foundation. He meant it as, a, as, as batter boards that have strings nailed to each other by which we measure the diagonals of our theology. The purpose of the book, it begins with creation. It begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that lays out the sovereignty of God. If God made it, it's his, and he has the right to speak to how it should be run, what should be done with it. I mean, if, if, you, make a, uh, if you bake a cake, if you make a meal, if you uh, construct a doghouse, it's yours, Let's say you build that doghouse. You can burn it down if you want. You can pour gasoline on it and light that thing aflame. It's yours. You made it. Well, so it is with the idea of God's creation of this world. If he made it, it's his. He gets to dictate what happens with it, to it, in it. And if he made man, then he gets to dictate to how we live our lives, how we treat other humans how we think of ourselves, pride or humility. If he's our creator and we're made in his image, then we have, it changes everything. But it goes through the patriarchs. And what do we see with the patriarchs? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. 
with the patriarchs, God doesn't just say, I'm sovereign, I'm the boss, I'm the despotas. I don't know if you remember from maybe last week. I'm the despot, I get to run this thing, and you have to knuckle under to me. In the patriarchs, God shows his loving, gracious, merciful redemption. He lays out his covenant before his people, and he says, yes, I'm sovereign. Yes, I'm almighty. Yes, I have the right to dictate, but I want a relationship with you. I want you to know me. I want to show you my love. Let me look at, let me, let me give you a look so you can see my kindness and my graciousness and my patience and my love and my self-sacrifice for your salvation. So this also is laid out in the book of Genesis, this foundation. The importance of the book uh, was relayed out in a video by a Jason Lyle, Dr. Jason Lyle. Um, and in it, he covered it. I took, I think, four pages of notes from, from his talk. Let me give you some of what happens to our theology if we just look at the book of Genesis as a parable or a fable or, or a morality story. Number one, the Bible loses its authority. If it's just a story, then it's kind of open to interpretations. If Genesis is just Genesis 1, God created, if that's sort of open to our own way of thinking, it's not a literal um, narrative of what actually happened, then the rest of the Bible loses its authority. So does John 3.16. So does our redemption and our glorification. If Genesis is open, then so is the rest of the book. If I can't trust Genesis 1-1, why would I trust the gospel? I mean, the gospel is much bigger than God created. He just spoke it and it happened. To save us, Christ had to die. It's far less believable that Christ died and that pays our penalty than God just simply spoke the world into existence. But if God didn't even speak the world into existence, the rest of the gospel is questionable. Jesus often quoted Moses quoted the Pentateuch, the five first five books, and he ascribed the authorship to Moses. He would often say to, the, to the, his listeners, to the Jews and Pharisees and his own disciples, have you not heard how Moses wrote? And so if Jesus was wrong, and Jesus was sort of deceptive that Moses didn't actually write, but Jesus sort of being a parable, then Jesus' character comes into question. Jesus is a little bit of a trickster and a deceiver. The concept of sin comes from the book of Genesis. That God gave a command and man violated it and it caused a debt and a penalty. And if Genesis is just some parable, some morality story, then it's kind of like, well, if Jesus descended from Adam and Adam was a metaphor... How does the, 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 the blood and body son of God descend from a man who never actually existed? It was just a metaphor. Jesus' incarnation comes into existence. If evolution is true, then we don't have a God who makes the rules. We have an ideology that says the survival of the fittest is the way to run a culture. And that means if you get in my way, I can mow you down because I will be more fit. And therefore, if I'm more fit, I get to treat you however I want. If evolution is true, we've got a real problem in how humans treat one another. 
But if God is the author of his scriptures in the book of Genesis, then I give account to God for how I treat other people. There will be a day of reckoning. And so the importance of Genesis cannot be overemphasized. But let me give you an orientation to the book as well. There's a framework here. We get our theology from, from Genesis. It is the foundation. It is the launching point. It is the diagonals by which we measure our theology. You know where the word theology come, comes from? It's a two-part word, theos logos, theology. Theos is the Greek word for God. Logos is the Greek word for word or idea. And so what the Bible is primarily doing in Genesis 1 and the rest of it, right through the end of Revelation, is giving us words and ideas about God. It's giving us an understanding of his person and his work, his creation, his sovereignty, and his mercy and his grace and his covenant. And so we, when we come to the book of Genesis, we should not primarily look for science. Now, what the Bible says about science, it says everything it says truly. It speaks about science. And the Bible's never wrong in anything it says about science. In fact, what we ought to do instead of trusting the science and trying to shoehorn God's word into the science, is we ought to trust the word of God and shoehorn the science into the almighty God, God of the universe and his word about what, the, what happens in science. But we don't look for science primarily. When I read Genesis 1, and I, I put, I, I, this week I put the discussion questions in the bulletin. And if we have time tonight, we can go over those, or I can save them for next week, whatever. But I kind of look at the scientific questions of the passage. And we can talk about those and discuss those. They're important too. But the, the point of the book of Genesis is not primarily to give us a scientific rendering or explanation of the creation. It's to show us how creation displays the sovereignty, the power, the majesty, and the goodness of our God. It's our theos logos. It's a word about who God is. And so as we approach the whole book of Genesis, when we get to the patriarchs, when we look at Noah, the flood that came on the earth, when we look at uh, Cain and Abel, when the, re the whole rest of the book, let's look for words about our God. Not a scientific rendering of how's that possible? We'll answer that too. And those questions are open for discussion. I, I do want to cover those questions. But our primarily, primary focus ought to be, this is a word, an idea about who my God is. So let's approach it that way. So I'm going to hit some of these principles very quickly. Um, first of all, maybe you haven't seen it before. Um, maybe you have. Genesis 1 lays out a Trinitarian God. Look at our passage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The beginning of verse 2 is widely debated. Sometimes people put a gap in between 1-1 and 1-2, the first half of the verse, called the gap theory. We can talk about that at another time. What I want to focus on is the second part of Genesis 1-2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God created... And then the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Now, we don't believe in polytheism. We don't believe in two gods or three gods or many gods like the Egyptians did and many cultures today, India and, and, and other places, the, our, our family gods. We don't believe in polytheism like that. We believe in one God. We're monotheists, a single deity. But what we have here is a differentiation between God and the spirit of God. So we've got a duality at least. 
Well, what happens then, very interesting, and this is how the apostles' doctrine works. We go to the New Testament. Who is, who is John? John is an apostle who wrote a gospel and an epistle. You know John 1, 1 probably well enough. In the beginning, same phrasing that Moses used. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was himself God. All things were in the beginning with God. He made all things, and without him was not anything made that was made. The word is Jesus Christ. The word is the expression of God. Christ's incarnation expresses details, pictures, shows, gives us a tangible representation of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Christ is the word of God, and he's a picture of who God is, what he's like. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning... Well, we have a couple, three things at least. He was there with God in Genesis 1.1. Christ was. Secondly, he is himself God. So when we read John 1 and Genesis 1 together, we should say, in the beginning, God and the Son created the heavens and the earth. God the Father and Christ the Son created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. We've got Trinity. Here from the very first scripture, the very first text, God wants us to know he's Trinitarian. He wants us to, to see this aspect of his character. But it's not until we go to John 1.1 1, 1, and the Apostles' Doctrine that we see the fullness of Trinity. This is why I went over Acts 2.42 for starters. In Genesis, the book, as we go through it, we're going to be constantly going back to the New Testament to the epistles, to the gospels, to see this is the, this is the big picture. This is the whole of the picture that we kind of get some details about um, in sketchy detail in the book of Genesis. Uh, again, I mentioned everything the Bible says about science, it says correctly. There is no error in scripture. God did not get anything wrong. He made it. God's not going to describe his own creation wrong. He's not going to get the facts wrong about what he made. But it's not a science textbook. Number two, we have this phrase repeated six times. It was good or it was very good. Why is that six times over repeated? After every day of creation, what does it mean when God repeats himself? It means he wants us to Get something. He wants us to hear something specific in this text. And again, I've skipped a lot of verses. I'm just trying to sort of hit the main concepts. First of all, we have a Trinitarian God, and what he made was good. It was very good. All six days of creation, it says it was good. Verse 31, as God sums up all that he did during those six days, and God saw that it was very good. God didn't misread his own creation. He wasn't tricked and deceived by what he looked at. He looked at what he's made and he said, man, this is awesome. And I think one of the things we should take from that is the power of God, the sovereignty of God that is displayed in, his, in, in creation. It shows his beauty. It shows his wisdom. It shows his power. 
through the creation. We should look at creation, both then and now. When we look at creation, we should say, what an awesome God. What a, what a genius, brilliant, wise God. What an all-powerful God that can speak in earth into existence. And the language reads up, in, the way the language reads, it immediately existed. It wasn't like he spoke and waited a million years. That's why the language, and there was evening and there was morning. That's a description of the Hebrew day. Their day started with sunset. There was evening and there was morning. One Day one, day two, day three. The use of day one, two, three, the ordinals, the numbers in sequence, one, two, three, four, five, six. That's indicative of 24-hour days everywhere in Scripture that, that it's used. And so I don't believe that, I, well, let's put, I do believe in 24-hour days of creation. I believe that's what the Bible tells. Now, I'm not here to debate that point this morning. We can do that another time. But we should still see the beauty of God in creation today. The sunrise and the sunset. I mean, do any of you have a property where you can see either sunrise or sunset? We are our house up in West Virginia. One of the things I loved about it is we can see both. We can see the sunrise coming up over the back deck in the morning. We can see the sunset off the front porch in the evening. And that's that's just the that's just God showing off. That's that's God just acting big. He's saying, look at what I can do. Look at what I spoke into existence. The sun, this moon. That, and Deborah was showing me some pictures from the house last night. The moon, a full moon. Man, it lit up the yard half as good as the sun did. And God's just saying, look at who I am. And just being transparent, if I'll stop and think about it, what I'll realize is, look at who God is. Yes, I wanted my house to sell yesterday or the day before, months before, but he didn't do that. What he's saying to me is, look at who I am. I can sell your house the moment I want it sold. Boom, it happens. So stop worrying about it, Mark. Stop fretting about it. We can still see that in God's creation today. We should do that. Not just in the big things, the mountains and the oceans and the tides, but in the little things, the microbes that eat the dead deer on the side of the road and make it dissolve and go away. My wife, Deborah, loves hummingbirds. I don't know if you have a hummingbird feed. If you don't, you, ha- you need to get one so you can see God's creation. Just that little tiny thing flapping its wings 60 times a second. And just that little bird just kind of hovering over the flower, hovering over the feeder. We can see the beauty of God in creation and stuff like that. And we should look for that. We should, we should have a mind towards God's creation that says, I want to see him in it. But I think this phrase, it was good, it was very good, is also to contrast us to the corruption of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, a lot of that was lost. And we can look at our world now, war and famine and disease, and racism, and hatred, and abuse, and decay, and famines. And we can say, as good as God's world is now, man, what a difference sin made. What all was changed? We'll, we'll come back to that. 
all of these, both the beauty of the creation as we see it now, but also particularly the sin and the degradation. I mean, every time we have a funeral, understand, that's not the sin of the individual. That's the curse of sin. We're not saying that person's a bad person. Might, might be a believer. We're not saying that person deserves our scorn and our, our... But every time we go to a funeral, what we're seeing is the effects of the curse of, of Adam and Eve's sin. And we should long for the return of Christ. Oh, man, am I so excited for Christ to come back. I won't have, won't have to put up with these knees. I won't have to put up with this hip. I won't have to put up with this lung surgery. I won't fall down escalators and bump my head. None of that happens anymore. It's all gone because Christ came back and ended the sin that caused the problem. So we should see that. Then, lastly, the man was made in God's image. If you look at verse 25, let me read 25 through 28 just to give the, the lay of the land here. It says, And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and their livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What we see from this is that God created animals and humans. In Genesis 2, we'll get there in time, it says, Adam didn't find any other creature that was suited to his humanity. This was before God had created Eve. This is sort of a summary. In Genesis 2, we'll get to the actual explication of that creation. Adam looks around, he looks at the animals, and he looks at the insects, and he looks at the flowers, and there was nothing else available to him that could share in his humanity that could walk with him in the cool of the, cool of the evening and fellowship with God before the woman was created. And so God says in verse 26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Again, there's the Trinitarian idea, the divine counsel of creation. Let us do something. And this thing we're going to make is going to be in our image. Not my, not the singular pronouns, the plural pronoun, me, uh, 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 um, us, our. It's that divine counsel of God, talking to the, fa the Father, talking to the Son and to the Spirit. And so again, we have the Trinity Trinitarian idea. But he made man in his own image, in his likeness. And I'll say more about that in a bit, along with... The, this concept of the decay of sin. We're made after the Trinitarian image of God. And it says in verse 20, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the fowls and every, every living thing that moves on the earth. I think there's three things we should take from that. Number one, man has an intellectual superiority over cattle and cats and fish. And all the creatures. Remember one time my dad was milking the cow. We had one cow. 
Scottish Highlands, Longhorns. And the cow just wanted to be buddies with Dad, and Dad wanted to milk the cow. And the cow's just kind of nosing up and nuzzling up against him and trying to be friends, and Dad just gets sick of it. He punches the cow right in the side. And the cow says, and then he keeps nuzzling Dad and just trying to be a buddy. We're created to have an intellectual superiority over the animals. Our culture is starting to get this wrong. Our culture says you evolved from monkeys. You're no smarter than a beast. You can treat other humans like you treat other beasts. That's what evolution teaches when you take it to its logical conclusions. There is no intellectual superiority of the man over the animal. But it teaches something else. God created us with authority over the animals. He said, subdue and replenish and have authority over them. We're, we're, suppo we're supposed to use our intellectual authority over the animals to, the old-timey word is husband them, husbandry, to tend to them, to care for them, to, to provide for them, to put fences that they don't wander off in the middle of the road and somebody drives down the road and hits them with their car and, and to, to make sure that they've got food in the morning and but also, lastly, that we'll have divine accountability for how we treated the animals and how we treated creation. And this is where I think the environmentalists get it wrong and they get it right. They get it wrong, they're supposed to take care of the earth because I say you're supposed to take care of the earth. No, we're supposed to take care of the earth because God says you're going to be accountable. I'm going to be accountable for what I did with God's creation. God's going to say, what did you, I gave you two acres in Lavalette, West Virginia, I gave you 75 acres. In Roebuck, South Carolina, what did you do with it? Did you pollute it? Did you, did you just dump chemicals that you didn't know what to do with anymore? The last that of corporations. The last that of foreign nations. What did you do with my earth? And so in the Genesis account, we have the diagonals of how we should treat animals and the environment that measures the standard. So, let me make some applications. Uh, a lot of this we've at least alluded to. In the Shorter Catechism, look back in your bulletin. In the Shorter Catechism. Now, we confess this together. Maybe we got it, maybe we missed it. Mankind's main purpose is to glorify and enjoy God. To glorify and enjoy God's not just saying, you've got to knuckle under to me, you've got to worship me, and you've got to do what I say. God's saying, I want you to know me. I want a smile to come to your face because of your relationship with me. And that's why we exist. Evolution, the, the common theory of the day says, you're born, you die, there's no purpose to life. Just your survival of the fittest, get what you can get, live your own truth, do whatever you want, and if you can get away with it, it's fine. And God says, no, your reason for existence is to know me. The highest possible purpose. God didn't give that to the animals. My cats are never going to know God. But we can. We can actually know him as he is and enjoy him. Smile because of, wow, look at God's creation. It's awesome. But... The second part is, what rule has he given that we can know and enjoy him? The word of God, the scriptures, 
They're the diagonals of life. Starting with Genesis 1. Starting with self-revelation, his power to create, included in his redemption through the patriarchs and his covenants that will take place from Genesis 12 to 50. That he wants us to, to have that kind of relationship with him. So we go to the Theos Logos. We go to the scriptures for words and ideas about God. Not science primarily. Science is there and it's correct in what it says. But as we look at this book of Genesis, as we look at the scriptures, we want to know him. I mean, I, 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 I'm not doing my job. Maybe I won't say anything that you haven't heard before about God. But every time I preach, I should say something about him that everybody needs to know. Those are my diagonals. And so, scripture is true about science, but it's not primarily focused on science. In that light, it's not surprising at all. It's completely normal that Genesis 1, 1 and 2, combined with John 1, would be Trinitarian. Makes perfect sense. His Trinity, his existence, the basic fundamental of who God is, of course he put that right at the beginning. Of course he wanted us to start out by knowing the most important thing about him. That he exists in unity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So of course God would start there. We look at John. We look at the New Testament. We look at the Gospels and the Epistles to help us to understand that concept. And that's why I started with Acts 2.42. We will devote ourselves to the apostles' doctrine, to getting all of this together in one place. Thirdly, it was very good. Along with enjoying creation now and wondering how good it must have been then, we should see what sin cost humanity and what was lost because man violated God's singular command. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what Adam and Eve lost. And we can look at Genesis 1 through 3 and we'll do that. But this is helpful, not in a, just a theological sense. This is helpful every time sin tempts me. Every time I'm tempted to use a mean word. Every time I'm tempted to look at something I shouldn't look at. Every time I'm tempted to, to eat more than I ought to eat. Every, every, every time I'm tempted to do something that's not honoring to my God. I, we should think about what sin costs. There's going to be a price. Particularly with us God people, God's people. He loves us too much to let us sin without consequence. The consequences of sin is not God's hatred. It's his passionate love for us. Because what those consequences, the little, the little nudges of the Holy Spirit, the, the word of God that, that, that kind of splits us in two. What he's saying is, I love you too much to let you keep going down this path. And I want to whisper in your ear. And I want to get you thinking about how you come back to me. And so when we think of that it was very good, we should remember that it's not anymore. And that my sin is going to do the same thing. In the microcosm of my life, my sin is going to have a cost. And that is the love of my God for me. Lastly, this idea of being made in the image of God. This is, this is immensely profound. 
If I could get our world today to embrace one scriptural concept other than the gospel itself, it would be this. The reason for it is this concept, that we're made in the image of God, is what makes the gospel plausible. First of all, I've got four things. I'll go through them quickly. Racism has no place in the child of God. Our world talks a lot about it. The way our world talks about it actually perpetuates racism and ensures it's going to exist forever. Racism has no place in the, in, the, in the believer's thought. In fact, I'll go a little further. I think we would do well to eliminate the concept of individual races from our thinking. What scripture lays out is that every human has, has the most important factor in common. Every one of them, Africans and Europeans and Australians and Aboriginals and Americans and South Americans and Mexicans and all made in the image of God. There is one race of mankind, the human race. When I disrespect somebody for their, their skin color or for, the, for how God made them, I'm disrespecting him. I'm saying he got creation wrong. Racism, the, the attitudes, the words of racism have no place in the life of a believer. I personally think, and this is a little bit of my own opinion, we need to get rid of this concept of individual races out of our thinking because it has no purpose other than to divide. When I think of somebody in their skin color making them different from me, what I ought to be thinking is they're made in the image of God too. And I'm going to treat them good and kind and right and loving because I want to treat God, their creator, in a good and kind and right and loving way. Number two, we're made in the image of God. We're created to know God. To not know God is to choose not to breathe. We're, we're created to breathe. We've got lungs. We, we, we've got a mouth that sucks in air. We've got, you know, filters. We've got God. And then the, the lungs distribute the oxygen throughout the capillaries and it mixes with our blood and goes down into our veins and that mixture of blood and oxygen. You know what it's like when you hold your breath or you're at the gym and you get that big gulp of air. It's good. We're made to breathe. To be made to know God, to be made in his image for the purpose of knowing him, and then to choose not to know him is like choosing not to breathe. It's like, it's like you know, it's like buying a $300,000 race car and then not taking it to a racetrack, just putting around town with it. No! Go to the racetrack! Open that thing up to a buck fifty. That's what it's made for! We're made to know God. Let's do that. Number three, I mentioned this before, God created it, he's sovereign over it. He made me. He gives me a purpose of knowing him, of loving other believers, of um, we all have our individual purposes. Mine happens to be pastor of a church. Yours happens to be being married to your spouse and raising your kids and, 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 and raising your grandkids and pointing other humans to Jesus. And we have this purpose. God's sovereign over us. Let's find it. Number four, this salvation that we'll learn from the book of Genesis through his covenant gives meaning to life. Our world eviscerates 
meaning, and purpose. It removes it. It says you were born by chance, you live by chance, you die by chance. We'll dig a hole, we'll throw your carcass in the ground when we're done with you. We don't ever want to see you again. Maybe we'll, you know, put your ashes up on the mantle and think about you twice a year and whatever. Our world removes meaning from life. God's creation being made in his image. That the whole of Genesis is laying out his salvation of us, gives us life a meaning. So as we go through the rest of the book of Genesis, uh, I hope we'll take some of these concepts as well. God's creation is very, very good when he got done. This Trinitarian God loves us enough to send his son to die for us. And so he's made us in his image for the purpose of knowing and understanding that. Much as I love the hummingbirds at the feeder, they're never going to know the mercy and love and salvation of God. Like we will, because he made us to know that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this book. I, I'm so excited, God, about what you're going to do and, and your creation and, and what's revealed to us about you here. Father, show it to us. Open our eyes that we may see the glimpses of truth you've given to me, to us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Stand with me for our hymn of response. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. We're going to sing verses 1 through 3. We'll sing the last two verses after the Lord's table. But we're going to sing these verses sort of... Uh, one of the things I read in the psalm this week is one of, one of the psalmist's laments when he was just overwhelmed by the sorrow and the brutality of life. He said, I will remember your mercy and I will sing to you. There's something about singing that applies truth to our hearts. So let's stand together and let's sing number 338, Spirit of God, Descend Upon.